Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. All right, welcome back. We are uh, going to talk more about the psychology of a pandemic uh, once again on the Mental Models podcast. And we had done a recent episode on the timeline of the uh, group and individual thinking and psychology related to a crisis, uh, specifically a pandemic. And we thought we would follow up on that by reviewing some recommendations from a recent paper in the prestigious journal Nature Human Behavior. Uh, it was authored by Jay Van Bavel from NYU and a, a number of other colleagues from the social sciences. And what they tried to do is put together a uh, conversation piece, uh, basically outlining a variety of factors that influence um, our national policy all the way down to our individual behaviors uh, in times of a crisis. And we thought it made for interesting reading, and they offer a checklist of recommendations for um, society as we go forward. And uh, that seemed pretty interesting to us. So we'll take a crack at this. All right. Uh, so I guess the, the first on the checklist was uh, the that typically within a crisis, there's a shared identity of purpose that can be encouraged by addressing the public in collective terms by urging us to act for the common good. Yeah, quote unquote us. So I think this one is uh, related to that tribal psychology we speak of oftentimes, us versus them, and those really fuzzy boundaries of what constitutes uh, our in-group and what constitutes the out-group. Um, we've seen things devolve a little bit in the United States to move toward more of a politically balkanized, tribalistic uh, viewpoint on the virus. But we noted early on that there did seem to be this uh, unified sense of purpose nationally and uh, with state and national uh, level government working together that seemed like that was occurring, um, giving one unified message for the common good. So uh, as long as you can define the in-group as all of us together, you have a chance to make some really good things happen. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, we tend to want to associate with things that are positive. Uh, Robert Cialdini, in his book, The Psychology of Influence, once wrote something along the lines that uh, if you listen to people talk about sports teams— uh, and they, they'll say, we won the game if their sports team that they like, uh, even though it's they were just merely a participant or a fan, uh, they, if they win. But then, of course, if the sports team loses, they tend to refer, say, well, they lost. Yeah, and you even get uh, physiological responses to that. So sports teams are an interesting arbitrary in-group simply because um, you can root for them from anywhere in the country, um, and you can be as distant from the players as, as if they were complete strangers from around the world. And you, and you become bonded by a common set of colors and the immediacy of the drama. And it's been shown that if your favored team wins, you actually get a boost in testosterone level. Okay. <laughs> and if, if they lose, you get a transient decrease. And likewise, oxytocin fuels a lot of this in-group behavior. Higher oxytocin levels tend to accompany viewing a baby, uh, viewing in-group members' faces, 
and it makes you a little bit more friendly toward the in-group and more hostile toward the out-group. So unintuitively, a lot of those tribalistic tendencies occur. Um, and it's important that p- our, pu- our uh, public policy officials frame it around uh, the collective good being the most inclusive us possible. All right. So uh, next on the list recommended by Van Bavel and colleagues is identifying sources for example, religious or community leaders that are credible to different audiences to share public health messages and that this can be affected. Okay. So what do we think about this one, Dan? Well, it goes back to the fact that we are a divided society and uh, people get their news from different sources and trust different people uh, in different positions. So I think this is what we'd consider a framing effect where uh, the packaging really matters. If you um, identify with a particular leader, you are likely to uh, take what they say to heart. If you reject that person's politics or their style, you may actually reject the message. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the case of the pandemic here, we've got a number of different people with different messages, depending on, in a lot of cases, that it's associated with party affiliation. Certainly, Andrew Cuomo has emerged as as a type of leader in New York State, and a lot of people are listening to him. Uh, and sometimes what he's saying goes against the national level recommendations from the government. And then I guess the, to contrast that, you have Fauci, uh, which maybe has has had broader appeal, but there are some groups that actually see him as being uh, quite controversial. Yeah, so that's one of the big challenges with this particular point is how do you get the same message to be packaged by different sources without running the risk of people discounting it based on the source. Right. Or maybe there, it, what if, what if, for instance, there's a popular message uh, about reopening, for instance, that is adopted from one source that one group tends to trust. And then someone who's perhaps unbiased recommunicates the message because they have a scientific basis, like perhaps Fauci who has urged caution about reopening. And then, therefore, he's associated with groups that are actually, you know, providing the opposite message from a different political party. Yeah, I mean, one thing that occurs to me is maybe it's a time of switched allegiances, depending on what's happening regionally for you. Um, I think about this with, you know, with regard to policies, you, you possibly have a workplace policy that you're abiding by. Local leaders in your community, certainly your state governor if you're in the U.S., and then you have the national level figures such as Anthony Fauci or Deborah Birx or Donald Trump, and and they're not um, they're not even really addressing the same problem because if you're in say uh, Salt Lake City, Utah versus New York City, you know you, you have really different features and probably different behaviors will occur naturally. And so there's a, a bunch of different mixed sources. And uh, I guess that's just something we have to keep in mind that um, the message has to be relevant to you for it to have any resonance, regardless of the source. I think that's that's a good point. And there's, so there's definitely regional differences, regional needs that are going to be differentiated and broad messages will not resonate with some groups because they don't they're not practical. And uh, they will resonate with others because in their particular circumstance, you know, that message or purported practice actually is a is a very reasonable and suitable remedy for their circumstances. 
things. Yeah, and I'm I'm reminded of the old adage, uh, think globally, but act locally. I think that applies here simply because if you're looking for national unity, at least in the U.S. or certainly Great Britain, you're not going to find it. You're going to be very disappointed. But you can think locally and uh, you can achieve some coherence that's relevant to your to your life um, boots on the ground and at any moment. So we have to kind of balance those things. Okay. All right. Uh, next on the list is leaders and the media might try to promote cooperative behavior by emphasizing that cooperating is the right thing to do and that other people are already cooperating. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is a, uh, a, what the group effect, basically what they're trying to tap into here, you know, by saying, you know, and, and, and hurting behavior. If you say, Oh, everyone is already doing this. Uh, then that tends to have a powerful psychological effect on people thinking that, you know, it's the, it must be the right thing to do. Absolutely. And we've talked about this before um, with uh, regard to some of these strange effects in psychology. I'm reminded of um, some of the work uh, that indicates, <laughs> you know, you, you can start to corrupt people's answers to even simple questions by group influence by, um, you know, one of the classic examples is, you have a, a series of, of simple lo- dr- lines of different lengths drawn, and you have to s- say what's the longest. And it's all going along fine, and you're watching others also judge the longest line. And at some point, the group who's in on the experiment begins to say the second longest line is actually the longest. And people succumb to the peer pressure because they think they must be missing out on something, or maybe their own perception's faulty. So we do have a tendency to want to join the in-group uh, no matter what they may be doing. There's a fun little experiment that you can conduct yourself uh, on uh, this tendency. The next time you go into an elevator, you know, t- people tend to turn around and look at the number that's you know, facing the door. Well, don't turn around. Just stand there and stare at everybody uh, when you walk into the elevator uh, and face towards the back of the elevator. Yeah, that does promote a sociability in some ways, but it breaks with a norm. Right, right. But what I, what I think is interesting, I think uh, Cialdini mentioned this at one point in time, and he said that there's actually instances where people do this and everybody ends up turning around facing the other way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we see herding behavior all over nature with different species, uh, the old adage of, of lemmings going off the cliff. Um, the power of in-groups is very strong. And so I think uh, for, for influence, just speaking of Cialdini's influence uh, tips, you know, any, any way to uh, bond a group together is likely to promote um, abide, you know, abiding by some particular policy. Okay, uh, next on the list, norms of pro-social behavior are more effect- effective when coupled with the expectation of social approval and modeled by other in-group members who are central in different social networks. So uh, this is um, one of those cases of having, I think, very concrete cues um, where you're anticipating getting some sort of uh, reaction that's positive for whatever behavior you're exhibiting. Okay, so... Uh... And they're modeled by in-group members. So perhaps this is also why they try to have celebrities come and provide. Yeah, doesn't Kylie Jenner have some massive social network? And I if, think so. If you bond with, if you identify with that person, if they do this uh, and they are seen as um, an effective leader, you're likely to follow? I think so. I think so. So I like the notion of central and social networks. That's, that's sort of like organically finding the leader. 
who people will follow. Uh, the next on the list is going to be one of the really tricky ones. Leaders and members of the media should highlight bipartisan support for COVID-related measures when they exist. As such, endorsements and other contexts have reduced polarization and led to less biased reasoning. So this is probably what occurred in that sort of fear, stress, and panic mode when um, people were realizing the virus was more than the flu and that it was occurring. You saw some bipartisan reaction. Um, but we are a very polarized nation in the United States. And so um, we do have some backdrop of, of uh, antagonism that's going to limit this this capability. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, circumstance where we saw massive, massive government intervention on a bipartisan basis at the very beginning of the crisis. You know, it it kind of reminds me of an old saying uh, that I think they used to use in uh, maybe it was World War One uh, about there being no atheists in foxholes. But uh, in this case, there are no libertarians in foxholes. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> everybody uh, may have had some notion of not uh, believing in government intervention. But when push came to shove and it looked like we were going to and we have have this massive, massive uh, disruption to the economy, everybody got on board pretty quickly, particularly in an election year. Uh, to have massive government intervention on a scale never seen. Yeah, people can be mobilized under the right circumstances. Okay, uh, there's a need for more targeted public health information within marginalized communities and for partnerships between public health authorities and trusted organizations uh, internal to those communities. So this is really about reaching the diversity of people that may be struggling and uh, I think it somewhat goes back to identifying those sources that are going to get the uh, boots on the ground message conveyed in the correct way. So I think that's, again, how, who you identify with, you know, the more it comes from that, um, that person and, and the more the message is tailored as relevant to you, the more it's going to be listened to. Right. And I guess, again, to the extent that these uh, you can have cooperation among desperate groups, uh, it makes a big difference because certain authority figures are going to just resonate so much more powerfully with the group that you know tends to be aligned with them. If those authority figures are working together and have a consistent message, uh, then it can, it can actually work more broadly for the group as a whole. Yeah, now the next item on the list somewhat gives a playbook for how you would do that. How do you get the message to be palatable in a more flexible way, they recommend that messages first emphasize the benefits to the recipient so that there's a clear outcome that's going to be helpful Two, focus on protecting others. That's always popular. The notion that this may be uncomfortable for me, but if others are helped, I'll do it. Um, three, align with the recipient's moral values. That's the core or protected values component. They have to agree at some core level with the messaging. Uh, Four, appeal to social consensus or scientific norms. Or five, highlight the prospect of social group approval. Um, and that tends to increase persuasion. So a whole bunch of different fronts to press on there, trying to align with people's moral compass, the helping of others, and make the benefits tangible for any sort of policy or behavior. When I read this one, uh, Dan, it makes me think of masks and how uh, controversial they've become with some groups. And 
how I could see efforts on the part of authorities to try to, and influencers to try to get people to adopt the wearing of masks. But, you know, somehow ultimately, at least with certain groups, that has not worked. It's actually kind of gone in the opposite direction. Yeah, a persuasive message I heard along these lines was, my mask is to protect you from me. You know, and it puts it as out there as a public good. I'm actually doing you a service by wearing this mask. And I, and I think that's maybe one way that could be leveraged. Yeah, I th- I'd like to think so too. I think the counter line that people have adopted, it's an infringement on their personal freedom. And I think a good counter to that is basically, no, it's just a matter of courtesy, right? If, uh, if it could be sold as being something that you're doing out of respect for others. Yeah, and then there's the issue of masks are just uncomfortable. People will say, you know, just if you're wearing them for a long time, like in the heat, and um, you'll see sometimes people put their mask down on below their chin, which make kind of renders it ineffective. So we're seeing a lot of variation. Getting toward the uh, the final recommendations, given the importance of slowing infections, it may be helpful to make people aware that they benefit from others' access to preventative measures. Uh, This feels pretty uncontroversial. I I don't think there are too many people that don't want to see PPE equipment um, being made available. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Preparing people for misinformation and ensuring they have accurate information and counterarguments against false information before they enter into conspiracy theories, fake news, or other forms of misinformation can help inoculate them against false information. Boy, that doesn't roll off the tongue easily. No. That's a lot of uh, words of misinformation. I think idea inoculation is the key here. This notion that um, if you somewhat fight misinformation before it spreads, you know, give people sort of a plausible counter argument that it can be um, effective. I, I somewhat have heard the reverse, though, that if you try to inoculate someone against a position and you're ineffective at convincing them, they actually become hardened in their in their opposition. Yeah, I think so. I mean, perhaps if you can get to somebody before they've been hit is what this is stressing. And I think this this speaks to things like government conspiracies, sort of deep state hidden agendas that there isn't really evidence for on a day-to-day basis. So um, it's very hard to fight that sort of misinformation because it plays into the paranoia. In it's some very ways, odd. Right? It seems like people's willingness to adopt paranoid and conspiracy theories uh, becomes much more open in times like these. When you have these extreme events, you saw the same thing around 9-11. There were a lot of conspiracy theories that were floated that maybe the United States government had orchestrated uh, 9-11 or you know, that it was part of a banking conspiracy or... I think there was this, a whole series called Loose Change or something like that. I don't know if you if you're familiar with it. Yeah, these these complicated unusual events tend to move people toward thinking that there's it's really trying to make sense of it, right? It's 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 trying to like how what's the cause? It, it's it's uh, cause and effect reasoning that um, when you're dealing with these very uh, hidden lines of cause and effect, it's difficult. Yeah, I've heard uh, conspiracy theories ranging from the Chinese intentionally creating the virus uh, to uh, undermine the U.S. economy to Bill Gates being behind it so that he could make money uh, creating a vaccine. Another one that the drug companies were behind it so that they could get a payoff. Yeah, so these are difficult to fight because you don't think to say, hey, it's not this going on, 
right? right. I mean, it's it's a little hard to, hey, it's not Bill Gates, just in case you're thinking that. Right. <laughs> I've never been moved well, to know, say Bill that. Well, you know, Bill Gates really needs a few extra bucks. So, right. Uh, you know, right. why not create a global pandemic? And the, the last one, I think, is one of the best little pieces of actionable advice. Use, use of the term social distancing might imply that one needs to cut off meaningful interactions, which is, of course, negative. A preferable term is physical distancing because it allows for the fact that social connection is possible even when people are physically separated. And I think that actually does make a lot of sense because physical distancing puts it on um, just the, the metrics, right? Instead of actually stepping back from society in a way that's uh, difficult for people to do. Varies how much social experience someone someone needs how much stimulation they need in a day-to-day basis. But uh, I think the physical distancing just does seem a little more palatable. It, it um, That has a nice ring to it. Yeah, I think uh, perhaps it has less of a connotation of isolation. Okay, so in this episode, we've reviewed uh, advice from Jay Van Bavel and colleagues on uh, psychological responses that you can incorporate under conditions of a pandemic and uh, things like framing effects, the source, you know, in-group mentality, um, all of these things can be helpful uh, techniques. So um, we'll go ahead and keep physical distancing, but be socially engaged. Sounds good. All right. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models Podcast. The five-starred book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.